0: Welcome to your July-August 2010 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jared Bro. Our theme this year is Imagine, and in the next hour, our goal is to open your mind to the endless possibilities that await you and your speaking career.
1: Open your mind.
0: Well, the year of Imagine is coming to a climax as we get ready for this summer's NSA convention in Orlando, Florida on July 16th. And this is also the last hour that I get to spend with you as VOE host. Imagine that. Time flies when you're having fun. But let's not waste time with tearful goodbyes. Let's get right into the show, which includes Joe Callaway, visiting with the first speaker I ever heard at an NSA meeting. And when you hear her, you'll know why I signed up. Jane Atkinson is watching the young speaker who sings the introduction to our starfish segments, Patrick Henry. And speaking of starfish, when Dale Urban takes to the beach this month, swimsuits will be optional. As we gear up for the NSA convention, I get to go backstage with a mentor, friend, master storyteller, and fellow NSA New Orleans colleague, Gene Gatz. Gene, you'll be one of the main stage speakers in Orlando and you'll be sharing one of your signature stories, then actually deconstructing it and dissecting it for us while you're on stage. So let me ask you, when did you develop your love for storytelling?
1: Well, Jared, I've been very fortunate that I was born and raised in the south and I come from a long line of southern family storytellers so this is a gift that I've had for a long time and um, I still get together with cousins and aunts and uncles and we see who can tell the best stories.
0: So when did you realize that you actually had a gift for creating kinds of stories that make people laugh yet still learn something at the same time?
1: Uh, I used to just deliver content as a breakout speaker when I started in my business about 25 years ago. But after a while, I got really bored listening to myself and figured my audiences were getting bored too, so I decided to inject some humor and some stories. and. Someone had told me that I was very good at just taking ordinary things that happen every day to everybody, but then finding a message, finding a point, building a life lesson around it. And so I started doing some of that. I started using some stories and putting in lots of humor. And I found a dramatic change in my presentation an even more dramatic change in the way audiences responded to me and then that led to invitations to move from a breakout speaker to being on the main stage as an opening or closing keynoter because the humor and the stories and the content gave me the performance skills that I needed to be a keynoter.
0: Why is it that sometimes it seems as though a story works really well with one audience and then it doesn't seem to work well with the next audience?
1: I think it's not so much the story, but it's the maybe the right story for the wrong audience. I think we need to spend time getting to know who's going to be in that audience. We need to ask questions of the meeting planner. We need to get some feedback. We need to talk to people so that we understand what the audience wants to hear what the meeting planner believes the audience needs to hear and then we need to choose the right stories and uh, tweak them in such a way that we can blend that together and deliver what's best. Speakers sometimes say to me, you know, I've told that story a hundred times and it works every time, but it didn't work with this audience. And what I share is that, well, you know, the audience knew who they were long before you got there. You obviously didn't know who the audience was and that stories are really They're like a bridge. I think when we get up on stage, whether we're in a breakout or uh, on the main stage as a keynoter, I think that there's automatically that perception of distance between us and the audience. Like, who is this person? Where did she come from? Why is she here? And so to me, a good story builds a bridge between the speaker and the audience. Using the analogy of my southern family, you know, we often used to gather on the front porch to share stories. And when I'm telling a story, I want people in my audience to feel like I've opened the gate and I've invited them to come up on the front porch with me to hear my stories.
0: As speakers, we're all told that we need signature stories. In your mind, what separates a good story from a great story?
1: I think a great story is one that people can relate to. I find that audiences don't want to hear stories about how we were mistreated in first class on the way to a five-star resort to deliver a keynote for which we're being paid a lot of money. They don't want to hear those kind of stories. They want to hear stories that, uh, from everyday life that have a connection to them that they can relate to. Um, I tell a story about squirrels in the attic, and how last summer Les and I had squirrels in our attic, and I use that analogy when I talk about dealing with difficult people, and I'm amazed at the number of people who come up to me after a keynote and say, let me tell you about the squirrels in my attic where I work or where I live, and it's, I find that another good point about a a signature story is that some of my signature stories i've worked in a word or a phrase that becomes the buzzword or the buzz phrase of the rest of that conference and that's when i know i have really delivered and that to me is one of the ways you can tell that you've got a good signature story
0: i've heard your stories over the years the squirrel in the attic is new to me i've heard your <laughs> uh your story about all the things that people keep in their junk drawer do you just get these stories around your house? I mean, is it, you say the the southern household storyteller becomes the universal story because I don't see I don't see this necessarily working for a lot of other folks. Uh, you seem to pull this off in a unique way. How is that possible?
1: You know, I just told a story last week that came from came to me while I was doing a load of laundry, <laughs> and the phrase that I used began became the buzzword for the rest of the three day conference. Uh, my stories just come from life I mean I just I I look around I see what's going on I look at something that's happening to me and then I figure out well is there a universal lesson here is there a message that I could weave into this story and a lot of times there isn't a lot of times I think boy I've got something great and I work it and work it and it just doesn't go anywhere so I have to leave it alone because it was obviously important to me but it doesn't work for anybody else So. Looking around, finding points of interest, again, what stories can you find that build the bridge? And they, they don't have to be all, you know, down-home stories. They can be stories that are very, uh, very different, very unique to every person that's telling them. But there has to be a connection. There has to be a bridge. There has to be some reason that people are going to remember that story
0: with all of your stories over the years how much do you go through a process of cataloging those stories tracking those stories keeping track of, of which ones were told to which audiences and, and which ones are ne- uh, which ones are perfect for the next audience
1: I keep a f- I keep a page in my folder as soon as I book an engagement One of my pages in there is called My Best Stuff. And it's all of my stories. It's the best stories that I tell, it's stories from my books and. So I will go through, as all speakers do, and check off which stories I want to use. And then as soon as I can after that presentation, making a note of which stories I used, which ones I didn't have time for, which ones I just decided to tell spur of the moment and they worked. And so I keep track of that because uh, I usually get invited back again in a couple of years. And so it's very important to know what stories I told the first time so I don't repeat myself.
0: For those who don't have stories what advice do you have for them
1: everybody's got stories they just need to they just need to be aware Uh, i was working with a client on her stories a couple of years ago she's a very successful ceo she runs several companies she speaks to audiences all over the world and as she was beginning her speaking career she was having trouble connecting because she was so successful and so famous. And in one of our conversations, she told me that what she struggles with is that she always, one of the reasons she's so successful is she works so hard at being the best because the whole time she was growing up, her father always told her that nothing that she ever did was good enough. And I said, after we talked a little more, I said, there's your story. There's your connection with the audience because then you can turn to that audience and say, have you ever done your best and tried as hard as you could, but then had someone tell you you were never good enough, you'd never measure up? That was her connection, that was the bridge, and that's how she related to those audiences. So my best advice, if you don't think you have stories, it's very easy. All you have to do to find your best stories is to live your life, pay attention, and take good notes.
0: So Gene Gatz is just one of 10 great speakers that we'll see on the main stage July 17th through 20th in Orlando at the annual NSA convention. Joining me on the phone right now to examine the convention program more carefully is convention chair Mark Mayberry. Mark, I know you and your team have been hard at work booking speakers for quite some time now. Take me through some of the presentations that you'll be looking forward to seeing.
2: Whitley Phipps starts things off on a Saturday night. Wendley is the founder of the U.S. Dream Academy, and his message, The Power of a Dream, will leave you spellbound. Mark Gunger is a keynoter on Sunday morning. Our selection committee watched tons of DVDs, and Mark's caught everyone's attention from the very start. He's a highly sought-after speaker who talks about marriage and family. You won't want to miss it. Chad Hymas' program is called Imagine. Who needs legs when you have wings? Chad's father spoke these words to him in a hospital nine years ago after a paralyzing accident rendered Chad a quadriplegic. Chad is a true inspiration. Steph Duplessis from South Africa will show us how to speak as though to an audience of one. I met Steph at last summer's NSA convention And he's just one of those people that you like right away and once I watched Steph's video he really knocked my socks off I know that every attendee will feel the same Karen Cortell-Reisman has a cousin that you may have heard of Albert Einstein in this dynamic presentation Karen will use personal letters that were written by Einstein and based on these letters Karen will share an incredible story of resiliency and hope. We'll all feel a little smarter and definitely more energized after listening to
0: Karen's message. In addition to the five solo key knitters, Mark, you're also introducing a main stage event called Monday with the Masters. Tell me about that. This
2: is similar to last year's rally with one major addition. Each speaker will present for 20 minutes, then share with everyone in the audience the opportunity to share their immediate thoughts with their audience neighbors, if you will. These masters are Joaquim De Posada, Gene Gatz, Ruby Newell-Legner, Ty
0: Boyd, and Mike McKinley. That is an all-star list of masters, Mark. That, That sounds nice. Now, in talking with Phil Van Hooser, he tells me registration for the convention is on par with where it was last year, but that historically many people wait until this time, just before the convention, before they register. Personally, as an NSA loyalist, I can't imagine ever not attending because I can't afford to miss out on whatever new trends are out there in my business. But I also respect that in a tight economy, some people are making each spending decision very carefully. So what do we historically know about who attends the convention and why they attend?
2: Jared, there are three groups of people who attend the NSA convention and they each attend for different reasons. The first group are the VIPs or first-time attendees. While many VIPs have been speaking for years this is their first visit to an NSA event. There are also VIPs who are new to the speaking industry and hungry to learn all they can about speaking professionally as a career. The next group are the speakers who have been in business for two to five years. These speakers are looking for solid business building strategies and serious skill development programs that will help them improve their presentations on stage. The third group are the veteran speakers. Those who have been there done that but realize that they must continue to move forward in order to build on their success. These veterans understand the power of networking with other NSA members, and the importance of learning new skills in this emerging world of opportunity. For all of our attendees, there are countless reasons to attend this
0: year's convention in Orlando and of course there is always the popularity of three days of breakout sessions and i understand you have some new twist in those as well there are more than sixty breakout sessions designed to give everyone a solid
2: return on their investment several of nsa's X wires are presenting ideating sessions during each concurrent session slot at each of these sessions there will be no presenters but skilled facilitators who lead a group discussion. And by popular demand,
0: Meet the Pros is back. And I'll actually be leading one of those Meet the Pros sessions. Mark, thanks for calling in. Registration is in its final days now, so take a moment right now. Stop and sign up online at nsaspeaker.org. You have to be there. And speaking of the convention, have you also heard about the big hoopla at the convention? Yes, three of NSA's tallest members, all former NBA basketball stars, will be helping us host the NSA Foundation Benefit on Sunday evening from 6.30 to 10 at Orlando's NBA City. The funds we raise will help benefit speakers who find themselves facing catastrophic illness or natural disaster. And while I pray that you never need these funds, the reality is you may, because you have no control over what the future brings. As a two-time recipient from the foundation, I will definitely be there, and I really want you at my side, helping raise money for this worthy cause. Registration is online now at nsaspeaker.org. This month on a Category of One, we will have an interview with Glenna Salisbury. And Joe Calloway, of course, is is our host for this segment. I always put Glenna in a
3: category of one. What made you pick her for this category of one? I think everybody that knows Glenna uh, puts Glenna in a category of one for a lot of reasons. As a speaker, the thing that I think is so special about Glenna is that more than any speaker I've ever known, heard of, been associated with, her career is driven by her values. Her presentations are driven by her values and her faith. And she's done that in such a way that she's had an incredibly successful career, and she's done it on her terms. And she does what I think a lot of people could never pull off when you
0: mention the faith issue.
3: Yeah, Glenna talks about faith, but you know she does it in such a an inclusive way, letting the audience know what she's about, but then encouraging them to, in fact, embrace what they are about. And so it's it's just a joyful thing to watch Glenna speak, whether it's to a thousand people or one-on-one. It's magic.
4: Well, I really had been speaking, like most of us, uh, since I was in grade school. But I really found that what I love more than anything else is looking in people's eyes and knowing whether or not they're really happy and at peace and being able to give them information that maybe was going to help them have a greater life experience. And once I found out how satisfying that was to me and how much it uh, seemed to help other people, I started doing that for a living uh, as a a sales trainer. That was where I began and uh, worked in the world of real estate in California. And that was really a fluke that I ever started doing that. But after doing it for about three years and training people, I found that the real joy for me was in seeing their personal lives change as well as their professional. And then I got fired from this really good job. And that's how I became
3: a professional speaker. And your first, who were your, who were your not necessarily by naming the company, but what kind of clients did you, did you have early on? Who hired you?
4: Well, because I was in the real estate industry, I was still speaking there once I started uh, my own company as a professional speaker. And at that time, I was working for a small company in California, and Merrill Lynch went into the real estate business. And I started in the regional area of Merrill Lynch offices. And through that, again, just by word of mouth, ended up doing programs for Merrill Lynch relocation. And they, in turn, were supplying me as a gift to all the Fortune 100 companies because they all were relocating people. And so Merrill Lynch said, why don't you go speak to Xerox and Kodak and IBM for us to help them transfer their executives more effectively
3: the thing that has always struck me about you that i think puts you in a category of one is that your approach and you've already said it your approach to speaking to businesses isn't necessarily about here's how you or this company can make more money it's it's a little different what talk about it's press. really
4: very different as a matter of fact that's one of my Uh, thoughts about speaking, Joe, is that you really need to be speaking about what your values are. And and not that I don't enjoy money, but money is not a value of mine. And I really believe that ultimately it's not what drives people. And that in speaking we need to really uh, talk about the things that drive people. And I think family and faith and balance and passion Those are the issues that drive people. And as a result, if they love their job, those things have to be in balance and they have the energy to do their job, whatever they corporately might be doing. So I try to really address what drives people from the inside out. And I've made a couple of mistakes now and then by saying yes to a gig that ended up being about people who are driven by money commercial realtors for instance that would not be a place i should be speaking and i found that out painfully a couple of times because i don't address the productivity issue directly
3: that's one of the things i was going to ask you how valuable is it to know when to say no to a job
4: yes i i really think it's it's the essence that to know What's important to you? I often say it's not about a niche industry. It's about a niche audience. I need to know what my niche audience is. And my niche audience, and it can be in any industry, but it's with people who really do value the the things that... I value and vice versa, that there is a match in values. And so I know when to say no these days by what I know is driving a company at any given point. And people who serve others, who are uh, entrepreneurial families, for instance, the bowling industry, let's just say, many of those uh, bowling entrepreneurs are family owned businesses. And so that's a natural fit for me. A roofing contractors that's another natural fit for me. (laughs) Even though as a female, maybe you wouldn't think that's true. But the value system is critical there. And so I I think that's how you decide what's really important to you. And uh, are you dealing with people who would have similar values?
3: You had, and you did more... Well, not typical, because nothing you've ever done has been typical, but you did t- t- kind of traditional business presentations, and you had, now I don't know if it was a moment or it took place over a few months or a year, but you really did kind of have a realization, didn't you, about, wait a minute, here's what I really want to do.
4: Yes, I did. In fact, I've had two of those in my career. One of them was faith really drives me. My faith drives me. And I really found that increasingly I wanted to talk about that topic. And even though I had spent, for instance, 1980 to 1990 in corporate America primarily, by the mid-1990s, I began to really feel that I needed to let people be aware at least that I also have a lot to say about faith. And so I actually changed my website so that if you go to my website, uh, actually on the home page, you can go down the Christian side of my website or you can go mm-hmm. down the professional corporate side. And so right away, people are aware of what the message or the underlying mm-hmm. message is going to be. And I have found that it has opened huge doors for uh, me to speak in the Christian world. But more importantly, the corporate people who select me already know as I'm coming in what my underlying value system is. Not that that's what I'm going to bring to the platform, but they know that. And I have found that it's really enhanced my referral business because people who have some of the same values I have, love to send me to their other corporate friends who have similar values. So that was one of the huge wake-up calls that I had a flash
3: and, as you will, moment. Talk a little about the difference between faith, which is the word you use a lot, and religion, and then also, you know, in, in this era of political correctness and yes. everything, how do you approach the Christian faith when we live in, in a world of so many different approaches to faith and religion?
4: Well, in the corporate world, I find that virtually 90% of the people in any audience, faith is important to them at some level. And so I talk about the importance of faith. I do not talk about Jesus. And yet I'm very clear when I will talk to them, I'll say, for me, the Christian faith has been the driving force in my life. Whatever is driving you from a faith standpoint you have developed a system of values. And I wonder if you're feeding that faith factor. So I'm very careful never to talk about religion. However, here's an interesting asterisk to this, I think, because people sometimes as speakers ask me that question a lot, Joe. I really would encourage people who are not alive in their faith never to talk about God or faith from the platform. Because people feel your own lack of freedom. They feel your own nervousness, if you will, about talking about something that might not be politically correct. So if you're not totally comfortable and totally free and having that as a focus, don't go there. Because the audience feels your own hesitancy. But if you're free about who you are and comfortable with it, it gives them freedom to be who they are also. And they don't feel as if you're manipulating or giving them a, a, a quiet message underneath. But I, I do think that it's important to, to let people be where they are.
3: I'm listening to you talk about your message to these corporate audiences. And I keep thinking about that same message as it would apply to speakers and members of NSA. Do you think that we are guilty sometimes, uh, We just meaning people in our business, mm-hmm. of thinking in terms of what would be a smart business move for me? How can I make more money? How can I get more speaking jobs to, to the detriment of, wait a minute, what are my values?
4: I think that's a huge ditch we tend to fall into. And this is something I learned through coming to NSA, actually, is I found out that I wasn't doing anything virtually that other people were doing. And that made me nervous to start with. But I learned what I call my solar plexus test, that whenever I'm sitting in an NSA meeting, typically, and I hear what others are doing, blogging, for instance, and I think, oh, I should be blogging, or I should be... there In my solar plexus, I feel this sense of anxiety. And instantly I know, nope, Glenna, you should not be doing that. Because it's somehow not congruently registering with me in a positive way. It's creating a stress level inside me. And so the test for me is, am I totally congruent with something I'm excited about from the inside out, or am I thinking about it from the outside in? I should do this because it's time to do it, or I'm not on YouTube and everybody's on YouTube. Those are all the wrong reasons, in my opinion. I really believe that the strength and the power to change lives, which is why I believe we're on the platform, comes directly in relationship to my being totally congruent and comfortable inside me.
3: The term that I keep thinking as you say that is the incredible effectiveness, and we've all seen it, you certainly have it, of being comfortable in your own skin, uh-huh. both on the stage and off the stage. And just because when the speaker is comfortable with who they are and what they're about, the audience is almost automatically comfortable.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think it comes in the littlest things. One, of course, to be clear in your own value system and be comfortable with that. But I think even the climate you create on the platform, I often say, are you comfortable with the actual physical setup where you are? I've seen you, for instance, Joe, sit down Mm -hmm. and chat and, and you're comfortable with that. I always work from a mess. I put a, a card table-sized uh, place that I can set stuff, and then I have a lot of props that I may or may not use, but it's there. And then I can trust whatever I'm going to say is pretty much going to bubble up. I've got a general idea of the direction I'm going, but I'm able to read faces and watch what's going on, and respond that way. And because of that, I feel like I'm in tune with the audience. And yes, they get comfortable, and it's far
3: easier, and they get more out of it, I think. What do you need to get better at?
4: Well, I really wish I could get better at uh, the whole technology piece, that's for sure. Um, I'd like to get better at not resisting it. I really resist it. It's not only that I I am not uh, really aware enough of what's going on, but I resist implementing it. And I've started hanging out with the younger group of people who know why this is valuable and how to do it easily. Because I do know that their message, if you've got a meaningful message, it would be great to do podcasting. It would be great to do blogging if that is fitting, but I'd really resist it, and I'd, I'd like to get past that.
3: Well, let's talk about some of the aspects of your actual business. Your, You know, your business model, or do, do you generate income in ways beyond just the platform appearances?
4: Well, I mentioned earlier that I've had a couple of moments of brilliance, if you will, that seem to fit the flash that causes you to change. And recently, I had one of those things that I just stumbled into uh, three or four years ago. I was asked to lead the performance university, that track of the university in Tucson. And so I prepared material that was uh, readily um, accessible to others who would sit in the audience on how I've built my business, which is strictly out of referrals and repeat business. What was it that I was doing on the platform that seemed to cause me to to have success there through repeat business? Well, I got so excited about that because people really seem to get transformed through just the littlest things that I was sharing and out of that I got transformed because I loved watching people get better. So I've started doing Authentic You workshops and personal coaching and so yes that's driven additional income for me but I didn't do it to get the income. I've done it because I found it's a whole new avenue for me to make a contribution and, and really love that as a fresh new way of using my own gifts and talents.
3: What would you say to anyone who goes to, for example, an NSA convention or workshop and comes back and says, I almost feel depressed. I feel like I'm so far behind. There are all these things I have to do, and I don't know how to do them. I, I just feel, I feel almost like a failure. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that speaker?
4: Well, the first thing I would say is, have you remembered who you are? Do you realize that there's no one like you in the entire world? Do you realize that no one has your voice pattern? Do you realize that no one has the experiences in their life that you have? And everything that you are makes you one of a kind. And so you aren't like any of those other people you heard at NSA. You are called, if you really feel you have a message, to bring all of you, not all of anybody else, not any of the skills, not any of the unique things, a place to stand when you deliver your final punchline, not the poem, not... No, it's you. And so if you can mine like an archaeological tell, dig out the treasures of who you are, you don't have to worry about how to compete in the marketplace.
0: This month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson is profiling Patrick Henry. And what's interesting about Patrick is he is somewhat of a legacy meaning his dad was in the business, yeah. and now he's in the business. Why did you pick him as one to watch?
5: Well, he came up through you know, the youth program in NSA, and of course uh, was able to see this business from a very interesting angle. But he didn't really rest on any laurels get, once he got into the speaking business. He's certainly someone, although he's been around for a while, who continues to think of new ways to do his business. He's continually involving, uh, getting coaching and doing things like that that help take him to the next level. I think he's going to be somebody that we're going to see a lot more of in the future.
6: I never set out to be a speaker. I wanted to be Garth Brooks. And so when I graduated from college, I spoke the words that every parent longs to hear. (laughs) Mom, dad, I'm moving to Nashville to be a star. Well, I moved to Nashville and after a while I signed a deal with a publishing company and began writing songs and I would play oftentimes at a little place called the Bluebird Cafe. Now, for the listeners who have been to the Bluebird Cafe, you know it's small and it's an intimate songwriter's joint and Uh, Basically, they would do a format called a round, where a bunch of different songwriters would sit around in a circle, the crowd would surround them, one person would play a song, the next person would play a song, and I discovered pretty quickly that I write really good songs. But the guys who get rich write really great songs. And so I started performing the songs that I began to become known for, which were my funny songs. And I used to draw some pretty big crowds in there. And I started to realize it wasn't so much for the songs as it was the stories that I told that led up to the songs. And we just had a great time. And one time a guy approached me after a show at the Bluebird and said, I want you to play for our convention that's coming to town in a couple of months. I told him I'd be happy to. And so when the time came, I put together an hour show of songs and stories. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, I sure enjoyed your speech. And I'm thinking to myself, speech? What's he talking about? I'm Garth Brooks. I'm I'm a singer, songwriter. I'm an artist. And then he handed me a check for $500. And I said, I'm glad you enjoyed the speech. And so I realized (laughs) that... I had something a little unique. I had music, and obviously had a legacy in the speaking business, and so I began to combine stories and songs and mix it with message, and that's how our career was born.
5: Wow. That's a great story. Very uh, interesting. I've been to the Bluebird Cafe, by the way, yeah. and that round table is very, very cool. So where did you start in this business?
6: I started speaking to youth. I grew up in this association. Uh, I was part of the first youth program, so I grew up hear, hearing great speakers, and I was influenced by them. And, and of course, there's a, I, I said I wanted to be Garth Brooks, but there's a part of me that always wanted to be able to, to speak and to influence people. And so I, I started speaking to youth. I started speaking in high schools to student conventions. And honestly, when you go out there with a guitar in front of a group of kids, <laughs> you're a hit. And so it just got to a point after a number of years. I started to age out of the youth market. Uh, for me personally, I was standing in front of a group of about a thousand kids, and I felt the overwhelming desire to tell them all to pull their pants up. I knew it was time to go.
5: <laughs> I've wanted to say that myself a few times. Youth is a tough market, you know. Speak to that for just a second about how you, you know, made it funny. How did you keep their attention?
6: It's easy to speak to kids to students when you have a heart for it. You look at somebody like John Cradelli. He's a great speaker because he has such a heart for students. Um, For me, I enjoy the, if you're good, they let you know you're good. If you're bad, they let you know you're bad. I tell people that speaking to youth is... It's the only audience that wants you to fail
5: for entertainment value (laughs) other than maybe comedy clubs. It makes it tough. So I can see why you might want to transition out of that, maybe over towards more of a business audience.
7: Well,
6: let me just say this. My desire to influence youth didn't change as much as my material changed. I began to write songs about having kids and, and experiences that weren't inappropriate for youth. It just wasn't a fit anymore. And if they could identify with, with that, they needed more help than I could give them. Right, right.
5: Okay, so you decided that you were going to target associations. Yes. And what did you do from there, and how did that go for you? Well... Um,
6: I realized pretty quickly there's a difference between corporate and associations. people I'd come to NSA and people would say, "Well are you a corporate speaker?" And I'd say, "Well, yes, because that's all I knew to say and then, as I really started getting into the the dynamics of the association and the corporation, associations are different from the nature of what I do as a keynoter. Um, it just made more sense for me. I'd go into a convention and i will, I'll do my do my program and it's a it's a better fit for me
5: Mm-hmm. So associations make good sense, and you're working at the state-level associations because your fee is right at the right place for that. Yes. Sp- speak to that just a little bit.
6: I could say that I'm a $25,000 speaker, but I'll take a lot less. Um, the truth is, I came out of the youth market, so I'm, start, you know, I'm starting at the bottom of the fee range and working my way up, and I believe that my fee is, is appropriate for where I am. Um, yes, I'd love to be a $10,000 speaker one day, and I, and I intend on it, but... You know, baby steps. My dad always said, raise your fee when you have so much work at the current fee level that you want to slow down a little bit. And that's what I intend on doing.
5: Great advice. Great advice. We're sitting here kind of halfway through a recessionary time. And how has that impacted your business then?
6: It's impacted it a lot. Um, I've never been busier. I'll tell you what happened with me. Back in December, I looked at my calendar. I, first, I watched the news and I realized the recession's coming. And I looked at my calendar, and I had a panic attack. I've got three children at home, and I realized if I don't do something, I'm going to be in trouble. And so I changed my business model. I invest a lot of money into revamping my website, into revamping my marketing materials, and I hit it head on, and I did something I've never done on a large scale before. I started working. <laughs> Every Monday I make a list, a call list, of my target for the week. and. I kind of follow the Joe Charbonneau method and I just make sure, for me, five contacts make sense because I've, my wife calls it the shiny object syndrome. I see a shiny object and I float off into a different task, but I make sure I connect with five potential clients.
5: So that makes perfect sense that, you know, taking action every Monday morning, you've got your list of something to do. You know, the consistency of that is, is that what you attribute to your calendar filling up? You
6: know, everybody has a different business model, and everybody has different ideas of what works best, and it might be what works best for them. I remember reading a um, a speaker, um, Larry Winget. I remember reading his book, and he he said that if you're not getting booked, it's probably one of two reasons why. You're either not as good as you think you are, or you're not asking enough people to buy. And everybody knows that I'm really good. (laughs) At least we like to think I am. So I I was... I just wasn't asking enough people. And it begins to feed itself. Patricia Fripp told me, she goes, if you do a great job, you should book it, spend at least two speeches off of it. So I did the math, and I I realized all I have to really do is get ten speeches from cold calling and from developing these relationships from scratch. And then if I'm good enough, it'll begin to feed itself. And an amazing thing happened. I started getting booked. So when people tell me that they're suffering, and I don't discount that at all. I know it's hard out there. But where I am, um, I'm asking people to buy. I'm priced at at an appropriate level. And it seems to be working.
5: It's working. And, you know, one other thing. You mentioned Ms. Fripp. You went to her for some coaching.
6: (laughs) I grew up in the business. I married into the business. Uh, Jeannie Robertson's longtime 30-year assistant, Tony, has a daughter who is now my wife. And as a wedding gift, Patricia Fripp gave me a day of coaching. And I thought, typical speaker, going to give me product for a wedding gift. (laughs) But she went to my wife and she said, he does not realize it at the moment, but he will be very happy. Two years later, I was able to take her up on it, and we spent a day. Now, let me explain something to you. I grew up wrestling throughout high school. I've been involved in martial arts, triathlons, intense sports, and I've never had a more intense session than working with Patricia Fripp. (laughs) We went from 8 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I came out the other end with a speech. And it was just it was it was wonderful, and that's when the transformation began to take place that's when I found myself in a position where I felt that I was appropriate for adult audiences uh, for grown ups and i've evolved since then um, i've added to what she started, but I attribute a lot to what she's done also the coaching that Jeannie Robertson and I uh when you um, marry into the business, you have an instant mentor, whether they like it or not and so At least once a month, sometimes more, Gene and I will get together and just work on material and brainstorm. The same dynamic that we uh, operate under is the same dynamic that I operate under in Nashville with songwriters. Uh, We'd get together and just sit in a room with guitars and start pounding out songs, and that's the way we do with material. It's fun.
0: It's time to get your to-do list ready for our final installment of if you could do one thing this month. I'm proud to say I've actually acted on every one of the previous nine tips from our panel of experts as we discuss product development, social media, writing, and business strategies. So for one last time, let's break those big tasks into little actionable items in if you could do just one thing this
8: month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, It would be to find a way to clone yourself, so when you are already booked, or your client just can't pay your fee, or you just want to serve more clients, you have someone qualified to deliver your material. Personally, I have two speakers who have become trained in my material, so I can recommend them if I can't take a date. One is a great short program presenter, and the other is more of a trainer for a half or full day program. When I'm already booked for a date, I highly recommend the appropriate speaker for their situation. Not all of my clients are willing to take a Bill Cates substitute, but many do. The more one of my clients knows, likes, and trusts me, the more likely they are to take one of my other speakers when I can't take the date. Of course, you must do your due diligence to make sure you have a quality person or persons representing you. And you have to give them the freedom to be themselves. My speakers deliver my material, but they tell their own stories and often give different examples than I do. The net result is a quality program. By the way, what I'm talking about here is not like hiring freelance trainers to deliver a training program for you. I'm talking about hiring high-level speakers who can take your place, well, almost take your place. You'll have to pay them more than a contract trainer. In our case, we take 22% of their fee. It's less than what a bureau would take, so they're happy, our client is happy, and we generate revenue we wouldn't have made otherwise. Last year, we generated $40,000 net revenue from this strategy. While it's not a huge amount in and of itself, every little bit counts. Heck, it's almost enough for one year of my daughter's college education. So having other quality speakers who can speak in your place allows you to serve clients, serve more clients, and generate revenue. I want to take just a minute to reflect back on these 10 segments I've done for Voices of Experience. If you've been following all 10 of them, then I hope you've picked up on two very significant points. First, grow your list. Let me say that again, grow your list, keep growing it. The bigger your list of clients and prospects who know you, the better all of these strategies can work for you. Second, there is a synergy that gets created from interacting and serving your clients in multiple ways. It's a classic case of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Building your list will allow you to promote various products and services to your clients and prospects. Speaking leads to video training sales. Boot camps and teleseminars lead to speaking and coaching and licensing. So over time, without overwhelming yourself, find ways to develop these various multiple streams of income. You'll create more value in the marketplace and reap the rewards of doing so. I hope you've enjoyed my segments for Voice of Experience. I've certainly enjoyed creating them for you. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result.
7: I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing for one last time. I can't believe that we're at the end of our writing journey together. I have been imagining you bent over your notebook, timer ticking in the background, writing like crazy. Messages like these provide motivation to keep on writing you're not going to stop now, are you? If you're a writer who sometimes speaks, chances are getting to your writing won't be a problem. If, however, you are a speaker who sometimes writes, motivation might be an issue. If that's the case, you might consider forming or joining a writing group. Suggestion. Forming or deciding to join a writing group is a big deal. Before you sign up, I'd suggest reading Ursula Le Guin's book, Steering the Craft, Exercises and Discussions on Story Writing for the Lone Navigator or Mutinous Crew. Yes, she is the wonderful science fiction writer. You should read some of those books too, but for now, focus on this helpful book on writing groups. A writing group can help you stay motivated, give you helpful feedback, and coach you through a writing rough spot. They can commiserate when it's tough and celebrate when it works. If you're in a really well-managed group that's built trust over time, the truth that gets told will be priceless. If you're in a group and it's not working for you, either negotiate change or get out. Just as you shouldn't continue seeing a doctor who doesn't communicate well, a dysfunctional writing group isn't going to help your writing. Don't give up the notion of a writing group. Just start over again. Since only writing will make you a better writer, open your notebook and at the top of a clean page, write, why a writing group would be valuable for me. Set the timer for 10 minutes, hit the start button, and write away. Based on the needs you've expressed, write a few sentences about your desire to join or form a writing group, who you'd like to write with, and how and when you're going to take action. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed doing these VOE segments with you. Thanks to Jared and Phil for this amazing opportunity. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes have been shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Okay, one more time. Remember, talking about writing isn't writing. Only writing is writing.
9: Ford Sakes here, what's the one thing you could do this month to help you monetize your social media marketing efforts? Let's take a look at Twitter. Twitter's reaching critical mass and new applications, add-ons, and syndication tools have made using Twitter and communicating your value and building relationships amazingly simple. Now simple, but not necessarily easy. I'm sure most of you listening already have a Twitter account so here are a few tips to help you leverage Twitter as a professional speaker. Number one, your bio information is vital to many making a decision to follow you or not. Number two, post useful and helpful information that others will see as value. Number three, don't tweet that you're at Starbucks because unless you're famous, and I'm not talking about you and your own mind, I'm talking about celebrity status, nobody really cares. Number four, respond with a direct message when someone sends you a personal direct tweet. Number five, retweet other tweets that you think are interesting. Number six, talk and share about different things. Share value about your business in helpful ways, but not all the time. People also want to get to know the real you. Number seven, Get a desktop or smartphone application or both to help you manage your Twitter account. It's almost impossible without something like TweetDeck. I use TweetDeck for my laptop computer, and for my iPhone, I use an application called Twitterlator, but there's several out there. Apps can group users, do automatic searches for you, and coordinate the flood of incoming data. Number eight, follow people. Okay, I know you have to follow people to use Twitter well, So pick your followers and build those relationships. One of the sites I found helpful is a site called Twello. It's like the Yellow Pages, but it's T-W-E-L-L-O-W dot com. Number nine, don't be one of those obnoxious auto thank you people. My direct messages go to my cell phone and I've been woken up in the middle of the night a number of times by a canned Twitter response. Not only is that frustrating, but I immediately unfollowed them as a result. Number 10. Join in Twitter conversations with others by sending replies to interesting posts. So you can follow me at www.twitter.com forward slash prime underscore concepts. I'm Ford Sakes from primeconcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts.
10: Hello, it's Mike Rayburn again. You know, one of the cool things about speakers is most of us embrace personal development. And that's good. But there's a flip side to that, where I see many of us, me included, can get detrimentally caught up in it. I mean, we're listening to learning tapes and going to NSA chapter meetings and conferences and concurrent sessions, and we're taking copious notes, and we're going to apply them all. We're working on our promo or our websites. We're working social networking sites. We're memorizing our speeches and employing the latest platform techniques, making our sales calls, trying to get organized. And while that's all well and good, the problem is this. It can become a paralysis of analysis where we overfocus on the process rather than the result. We overthink the whole thing. And we've all seen speakers who are repeating what they've memorized and very obviously and clumsily doing what they've been taught rather than letting it flow. So how do we avoid this? I'm going to put it in guitar terms, but it applies to all of us. In the end, just play. Forget everything and just let it flow. Of course, all these tools are profoundly important. But in the end, it's not about applying a certain business tool or a performance technique. All of those tools need to become colors on our palette, which we use when we need to. In the movie Shine, which is about a prodigy piano player, there's a point where this whiz kid student finally gets the right teacher. The teacher says something that we as speakers need to remember. He said, you learn the notes so you can forget the notes. As a guitarist, I know that if I'm thinking about what note comes next, I'm not really playing music. As a comedian, I know if I get a heckler and stop to think about what to say, I'm dead. However, if I forget everything and just open my mouth or start to play, the right words and the right music usually come. Aaron Copeland, the great 20th century American composer once said, inspiration may be a form of the subconscious or of the superconscious. I wouldn't know but I am positive that it is the antithesis of self-consciousness. When we're overthinking things, we're self-conscious. However, when we learn all the tools, techniques inside and out and then let go and just play, we put ourselves in a place of inspiration and creativity. This is when we start to no longer emulate someone else, but discover our true voice as speakers. So yeah, learn everything and keep learning, but in the end, let go and just play. Hey, I have enjoyed these 10 segments with you, and I wish you the very best. Thanks. So many of you were kind enough
0: to send cards and emails this year telling me about the parts of VOE that you like the best. I really appreciate it. And on LinkedIn, you went loud. You wrote glowing reviews about the starfish story as your favorite part of VOE. Well, this is the last time you get to stick your metacarpals in the sand as we stroll hand-in-hand along the beach with... Dale Irvin. Which, if you know Dale, there's only one kind of beach where you would find him. The kind of beach where clothing is an option. Let's join Dale live for the finale of A Night of a Thousand Starfish.
6: If I'm gonna be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Cause everyone around must know just who I are, baby. If I'm gonna be a speaking star. If I'm gonna be a speaking I think, star, ladies and gentlemen, it is time
0: for you to put your seats in the upright and most uncomfortable position. Lock your seat trays. If you lose oxygen from laughing, margarine cups will fall from the overhead ceiling. Dale Irvin. I didn't
11: memorize mine, but it'd be funnier than Sanborn's. (laughs) Let let me just start out by saying that I'm a big fan of the aristocrats' joke. I've told it myself for years. Now, if you folks in the audience are, n- are not familiar with the aristocrats joke, it is the most vile, disgusting, despicable joke you will ever hear, and it's told differently by every person. The only rule is that the first line and the last line are the same, and that's what I guess we're trying to do with the starfish story. So when Jared calls me and said, do you know the aristocrats, like, oh boy, you bet I do, he said, how? How would you like an opportunity to tell the starfish story, a la the aristocrats? And I got to tell you, I pretty much uh, jumped at the chance. And then uh, tonight, uh, I hear that you know the, the 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 starfish story, unlike the aristocrats, is to be void of any foul language. And if you take the foul language out of the aristocrats joke. It's a stupid joke. (laughs) And the Starfish story is stupid to start with. (laughs) So I thought a few spicy words might perk it up a little bit, you know. But then I find out about this restriction, and i got to tell you, I come to you a a little uh, unprepared. Hence the notes. You know, I, I, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, if, if, if it's the salty words that offend people, what if I take my finely crafted story that I have worked months on and just were to remove the salty words and in their place... <laughs> There we go. I'm going to take this finely crafted story and any place there may have been an offensive word, I will throw in one of these because that way, if you hear the joke and you're still offended, it's whatever word you put in where the was. Because there ain't nothing offensive about, okay. A man was walking down a beach, naked. It was all right, it was a nude beach, you know, and if you've ever been to a nude beach, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. But this guy was different. He had a on him like a $30. I don't know where he hailed from, but I think a good guess of his hometown might be Nantucket. So he's walking down the beach, dragging his (laughs) behind him. (laughs) When he sees this beautiful woman, built like a brick house. (laughs) She had a huge and a cute little and a that would make you just wanna until you died. And then the two of them locked eyes, and then she locked eyes on his (coughs) And before you could say, (coughs) they were like two (coughs) on spring break. (laughs) Now they put on such of a (coughs) show that the other people on the nude beach began to gather around. And they're all saying, look at those people. And it was beautiful because they were utilizing, you know, a lot of different uh, configurations including the, uh, position, the style, and the rarely used Bolivian cluster. (laughs) And these people have never seen a, a fest like this before, and they said, we should reward them." And one guy said, you, we don't have any money, we're naked, we don't have pockets. Wake up, face. (laughs) And one person said, we got a lot of starfish on this beach. Let's throw starfish at them. So they hurled starfish at the couple while they were, and pretty soon they were covered with starfish and had starfish crawling in there. And then, and then they're all done, and the people around are just applauding and they're clapping. And the couple stood up and they removed the starfish from their, and their. And, and one guy said that was the most amazing I've ever seen, and the woman said, Oh no, I don't do it for me. I just do it to bring pleasure to the world. And he said, the world's so big, how can you make a difference? And she looked over at her partner lying there like a spent and grabbing his with both hands and said, I made a difference to that one.
0: All right. So so Dale Irvin is always somebody who's going to push the envelope. Uh, David Glickman and Ron Culberson are here to help me dissect his performance. Your thoughts on a guy who comes out with a squeaky horn to replace curse words? Well, he he set up the bit brilliantly.
9: And uh, Johnny Carson used to say, if you buy the premise, you'll buy the bit. So by setting up this premise that he supposedly didn't know he was not allowed to use foul language, and now, in the moment, has to find a way to get around it, that built the anticipation of the audience. And as soon as he pulled out the squeaky thing, we kind of knew where he was going, so we were pumped, we were primed, we were ready, and then he just took us on the roller coaster ride.
12: You know, um... It also illustrates how powerful something can be when you don't say it. What he said in the beginning was, I'm not going to say, I can't say these words, so when I honk the horn, whatever you hear... Is your own doing? I mean, that's just, and so of course everybody, you know, you know what most people are thinking when he does that. They're creating their own humor, but he is creating humor without saying something, and I think that's amazing. Plus, the delivery of that is very difficult to uh, to accomplish. To be able to go through the whole thing and never once say the word or mouth it, which he did not do, um, it it, it takes a lot a lot of restraint to keep from from being able to do to, to letting it slip, and he did that really, really powerfully. But the uh, the concept of how to write humor, a concept this touches on, is what if you were to come up with a bit where you say, what what if I couldn't do this, what would it look like? And that's the premise upon which you then can go another direction in writing something creatively.
0: And his idea that he let us put the word in as a Catholic from New Orleans. I had a whole lot of Catholic guilt, and I actually went to confession twice <laughs> during his performance for the words I put in.
12: You must have put a worse <laughs> word than I did. <laughs>
0: And it's our final chance to sit with Phil Van Hooser. Phil, you and your team have been working for really more than two and a half years to get to this point in time, which we will now see as the climax at the convention in Orlando built entirely around the theme of Imagine. What goes through your mind as you reflect on this past year as president and as you end your term by pinning the presidential pin on our next president, Kristen Arnold?
13: Jared, now that's a tough one my mind and my heart are absolutely full of good thoughts and good feelings as my presidential term winds down now I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that the past year has been a cakewalk this has been a challenging year on a number of different fronts but Jared I will tell you that the good memories far exceed any others in my mind and my heart at this point so what are
0: some of those great memories that stand out clearly in your mind today
13: Jared, I have given that some thought. First of all, I think of all the wonderful people I've had the opportunity to meet and interact with all around the world. From the two dozen or so NSA chapters I have visited, to the global Speakers' Federation countries that have treated me as an honored guest on their home soil. I leave the presidency with more new friends than I could have possibly imagined. Secondly, I also think of our current NSA Board of Directors and NSA Headquarters staff. What an honor it has been to work with and learn from such hardworking and dedicated professionals. Specifically, Stacy Stacy Techner, NSA's Executive Vice President, has been a tremendous partner for me this year. But Jared, in the forefront of my mind, I'm remembering fondly the individual conversations that I had with more than 50 of our NSA colleagues. Some of those conversations were held more than two and a half years ago when I called people like you and asked if they'd be willing to come along beside me to volunteer, to work hard, all with the intent of making NSA a little bit better. To you, Jared, and to so many others, I want you to know how grateful I am.
0: Well, I'm grateful for the honor to be able to serve. And yes, I do remember those initial calls at all hours of the day and night in the time that's followed. And of course, this year has been the busiest year.
13: It certainly has been a busy year.
0: So here it is, the final question I have for you as NSA president, the question and answer that will live forever in the annals of NSA history. Drumroll, please. (laughs) Phil, you don't strike me, necessarily, as the kind of person who would ever think about what his legacy would be. But I need to ask, what do you imagine your NSA legacy will
13: be? Jared, i got to tell you that I've spent very little time thinking about what my legacy would or or should be. I learned a long time ago that it's wasted time thinking about things that you have very little, if any, control over. But I do tell you this. I have thought about how proud I am to have been able to play a part, even a leadership role, in this organization. The very organization that has provided me and hundreds, maybe even thousands, of other aspiring speakers like me a place to learn, grow, and imagine. All I can really say is thanks to everyone.
0: Well, it's time for me to get serious for just a moment as I say goodbye and thank you for letting me share this time with you each month on Voices of Experience. A special thank you goes out to the VOE team. Thanks, Joe Calloway, for your CPAE level of wisdom and interviews. Thank you, Jane Atkinson, for coaching us all. Thank you, Renee Godefroy, for leading the way on giving back to others. Thank you to all of our One Thing This Month contributors, including Bill Cates and your great multiple sources of income. Bill will be stepping in behind me at the VOE microphone next year as your host. Thank you for the writing tips, Chris Clark Epstein. You know, I stopped talking about writing and I actually finished my book last month. Thank you, Ford Sakes, for helping make heads and tails out of all that social media stuff. And thank you, Mike Rayburn, for your brilliant observations on running a successful business. Who would ever think that would come from a guitar playing comedian? Thank you to all of our starfish storytellers who made us laugh every month and smile through the year, as well as to Ron Coberson and David Glickman for your spot on insights into humor as we dissected our starfish stories every month. Thank you, Lindsay Adam, for the international segments that help speakers transcend borders. Thanks, Mark Mayberry, and to your entire convention team for your updates. And thank you to Phil Van Hooser for your vision as president, for allowing me the honor of hosting VOE this year. Thank you, Jenna Stanfield for our theme music and thank you Patrick Henry for the starfish theme and a special thank you to each of our guests who took time out of their busy schedule to share the spirit of Cabot with us all. And a behind the scenes thank you to Rocky Hire and the folks at Master Video, Disc and Design for your recording and editing expertise. And thank you to Barbara Paris and the folks at NSA headquarters who coordinate VOE and Speaker Magazine every month. I have a final confession to make. You may not know it, but every broadcaster is tormented by how to say goodbye. Yep, we're always looking for a way to leave the audience with a profound thought. Edward R. Murrow left us with his signature good night and good luck. Walter Cronkite reminded us, that's the way it is. For my final goodbye, I have no choice but to leave you with just one word. I don't know if you remember, but it's also the first word that Phil Van Hooser spoke as president when he took the stage at last year's convention. And that word is... Im-
14: Camille! Can I ask you something?
0: Excuse me? Can I help you with something?
14: You must be one of Bill's little speaker friends i'm mrs Stainton.
0: i'm jared bro and in case you haven't noticed ma'am this is a professional broadcasting studio i'm in a recording session for goodness sake did you not see the necktie on the doorknob i'm looking
14: for bill's little girlfriend camille she's an mc you know bill never told me they were dating but a mother just knows these things camille was
0: last year's host and she's not here anymore and hasn't been here for a year And why are you wearing a black cocktail dress in the middle of the day?
14: Well, every year before the convention, I buy a new dress, just in case Billy gets his CPAE. I wanted Camille's opinion before I took it off.
0: Well, you look very nice, Mrs. Uh, Stanton. Uh, By the way, I'm Jared. You know,
14: you look more like a, a Benjamin than a Jared. Do you mind if I call you Benjamin? Mrs. Stanton? Are you trying to seduce me? Why, you're speechless. Don't just stand there. Say something. <laughs>
0: Imagine. Imagine.
4: Open your mind.